I just start right away. Okay, my, I'm Magnus Brechtkin. I'm from the University of Nottingham. I'm, as you hear from my accent, originally from Germany. And my topic uh, is uh, full Zionism on Madagascar. The title of this conference draws uh, the link between antisemitism and modernity. And my paper addresses the wider historical context uh, to add some perspective to what we have heard so far um, and what we saw in the previous uh, presentation, particularly on Monday. When we saw the memory videos by Menachem Wilson presented on Monday, many historians would have uh, immediately um, pointed to the fact that the form of presentation of these anti-Semitic stereotypes and the myth uh, being transported via TV and internet may be new, but the content is not. The so-called protocols of the elders of Zion, the theories about Jewish world conspiracy, the black libel, etc., all this has been distributed through anti-Semitic channels at least since the late 19th century. That's where we should start when we want to talk about the roots of global anti-Semitism today. There is an obvious link between the beginning of globalization, the expansion of modernity, and the development of anti-Semitism, which is all happening around the same time, the second half and last quarter of the 19th century. I will not go into details about the discourse on the question about from when on we should use the term globalization. But the late 19th century is an obvious choice. With the fast expansion of railways, the deployment of deep sea cables, soon followed by Marconi's invention of wireless communication, the scramble and division of Africa, and other previously remote and uncovered territories, one can argue that it was at this stage, at the end of the 19th century, that for the first time in history, the mental maps particularly of people in Europe and North America, were able to imagine a truly global world. At the same time, it became obvious that this world, its space, was limited. All problems, real or perceived, had now to be solved within this confined horizon. It was new. This is, as we know, also the time when modern anti-Semitism developed. It is an accepted narrative that those traditional anti-Jewish sentiments which derived from religious differences and prejudice underwent fundamental changes in the last three decades of the 19th century. The well-known theories of Darwin and their absorption into the political and cultural discourse comes to mind as well as the theories about race and race struggle by Gubineau and others, you know this. What is important with respect to our topic is the immediate impact on many people. These theories, scientific or irrational, combined with new experience of modernity through industrialization, urbanization, capitalism, and its ensuing, ensuing consequences, challenged their experience and worth. Modernity fell as a double-edged sword. Improved living conditions on the one hand, the uprooting of traditions, the end to safety and predictability on the other. These developments often produced the feeling of a fundamental anonymous threat, regularly combined with conspiracy theories, in which in the most prominent scapegoats, as we all know, became the Jews. The alleged struggle of the races became an essential element of this discourse, and the term anti-Semitism was actually coined for this sort of construction by Wilhelm Marr in 1879. Bruce Weiss has referred to it in the In short, in the eyes of modern anti-Semites, the conflict had be, been transformed from a question 
of faith and religion to a matter of science and finality. This led to the birth of a new type of political prophet in Germany and elsewhere. They claimed not only to have the key to history, but also the solution to all what people perceived as threatening and for what they argued the reason was the simple existence and menacing um, existence of Jews. One of the most prominent of these pseudo-prophets, at least in Germany, was Paul de Lagarde. Most of you will know him through Fritz Stern's portrayal in his book on the politics of cultural despair. Lagarde's solution, inverted, Marx published in 1885, was that Russia should move eastwards towards Central Asia and make space for German settlers. I paraphrase, quote, we need space in the immediate area before our doorsteps. We can offer something in return as far as appropriate, but if Russia does not accept, it forces us to expropriation proceedings, that means war. In this whole process, the Jews of Poland, Russia, and Austria should be sent to Palestine, or even better, to Madagascar, end of quote. This was the first time that the abolition, Abschaffung in German, as Lagarde says, of large parts of the Jewish population of Europe was projected as part of a European-wide resettlement process combined with German conquest and settlement in the East. Lagarde was not alone, a few further examples. Theodor Fritsch wrote in 1887 of a territorial solution to the Jewish question and uh, asked the Jews to acquire a colony somewhere, preferably outside Europe. Karl Pasch in 1892 suggested New Guinea uh, as a place where the Jews should be deported to. And I could name a few other examples I don't do at this stage. These are just a few examples from Germany, but one can find similar suggestions in other countries. The proposals reflect a reaction to what the authors and their followers perceive as fundamental threats of modernity which required, required coordinated action and cooperation. And this is why these anti-Semites start to think about international cooperation. Again, one example, in September 1885, a French anti-Semite, Jacques de Pies, traveled to Bucharest for a conference to found an Alliance Anti-Israelite Universelle, Universal Anti-Israelite Alliance. Although this was a short-lived project, it was nonetheless a typical attempt, and um, we can find similar. To summarize, first point. Jews became the object of projections in two ways. They were regularly identified with the unwelcome characteristics of modernity, and they became constructed as a race threatening other races. As a consequence, the idea of removal, segregation, isolation, and control became an anti, uh, international anti-Semitic program. The anti-Semites' proposals aim for what they describe as a definite and comprehensive answer. They aim for what later should be named the final solution. Now, fast forward, First World War. The First World War, as we know, accelerated and loaded this anti-Semitic process. Particularly, the Bolshevist revolution in Russia was regarded by the anti-Semites as a double challenge. On the one hand, they interpreted communism as a Jewish invention in the race struggle. On the other hand, they regarded the communist international as a challenge which they had to counter with an anti-Semitic 
equivalent. So here we are. In March 1921, anti-Semites of several European countries met in Vienna for a three-day conference, culminating in an anti-Semitic march through the Austrian capital. Two years later, a similar event was organized in Florence, and 1924, they met in Paris, and in October 1925, in Budapest. Participants from Germany in 1925 in Budapest were a son of Theodor Fritsch, whom I mentioned, one Baron Manteuffel, whom we don't know more about, uh, the Nazi, Nazi functionary Ernst Böpple, and most prominently Alfred Rosenberg, at the same time, the German editor of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. The Jewish Telegraph Agency reported that it was at this meeting that the anti-Semitic International was officially founded. Rosenberg stated that it was here that the proposal, and I quote, appeared for the first time to propagate Madagascar as the future home for the Jews, end of quote. It is not clear whether Rosenberg did not know Lagarde's earlier suggestions or whether he simply wanted to point out that the Madagascar idea was adopted by the international circle at this point. Anyway, from now on, Madagascar became the prime object of this group's international propaganda efforts, and the most prominent figure in this worldwide agitation was Henry Hamilton Beamish, founder of the Britons. Beamish had links to South Africa, India, and the United States, had attended the 1921 conference in Vienna. In Germany, he appeared with Hitler at a Nazi rally in January 1923, preaching to 7,000 people in Munich's Circus Krone. Beamish succeeded in raising the Madagascar idea of Zionism solved as a central aim for the anti-Semitic international, and his repercussions can be seen and found until the late 1930s. In 1926, the group met in August in the Danish city of Springforby, north of Copenhagen. The Völkischer Beobachter reported about participants from 26 countries, including Denmark, Germany, England, France, Holland, Italy, Austria, Poland, Switzerland, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, and Sweden. The Swedish capital, Stockholm, consequently, hosted the next meeting in 1927. It is not clear whether there was any international congress in 1928 and 29, but in 1930, the group met again in Swiss, Switzerland, in Luzern, and in 1932, they met twice in Munich and in Paris. Although these meetings were reported particularly in the Völkischer Beobachter and by the Jewish Telegraph Agency, they were usually held in a cloud of secrecy and conspiracy. The participants perceived themselves in a permanent undercover fight against world Jews. One consequence of this worldview was that they regularly used pseudonyms for their publications, which made it hard at the time, and even harder for historians, to identify authors properly. One prominent product emanating from the anti-Semitic international and reflecting the central topic was published in 1931 by a certain Egon van den Gehle for Zionism. Allegedly translated from the Dutch language into German, he also specifically dedicated his work to anti-Semitic groups in France, Switzerland, Austria, Scandinavia, Hungary, Romania, and, of course, to Henry Hamilton Beamish, the Britons. The author labeled himself Pan-Aryan, 
and claimed to pursue, to pursue the world mission of the Aryan race. He goes on to discuss the annihilation of the Jewish people, which he refuses, not for principal reasons, but, as he says, because it would be technically impossible. Therefore, the Jewish people should be deported to a place where they would be forced to create their own state. Palestine was impossible because it would be too small and there would be insufficient control. Hence, he called the settlement in Palestine pseudo-Zionism, while he suggested full Zionism. I quote, the Jewish people of all countries belongs exclusively on an island. And the title of this pamphlet makes obvious which island he has in mind. Again, to sum up the second point, we have two key criteria which built the line from the 1880s to this time in the 1930s, which we should keep in mind, enforced mass deportation and Aryan control. Okay, again, fast forward after 1933. Comes as no surprise that this group had high hopes for influence when in 1933 the Nazis came to power in Germany. Fort Zionismus had been published by U Bodung in Erfurt, publishing house. This publishing house was the invention of the notorious Ulrich Fleischhauer, a prominent member of the anti-Semitic international. Fleischhauer pursued his course like Beamish with high missionary zeal and low intellectual capacity. He had published an anti-Semitic encyclopedia named Sigila Veri, which contained a six-column article on Madagascar. In this, he uh, portrayed Madagascar as, I quote, future home of Israel. Together with Van Lingene, whose real name is Georg de Potterberg, he published the so-called World Service, which in a nutshell aimed to be the international coordination journal for the promotion of full Zionism. In 1933, Van de Potterberg went to Paris, from where, with yet another pseudonym, he sent a, quote, strictly confidential memorandum to Hitler, Papenfrick, Goering, and Goebbels. He claimed to represent a group of, again, quote, 22 like-minded persons from 22 different countries, end of quote. When he received no answer, he sent another five copies to the Reich Chancellery. We don't know about the reaction. Beamish, meanwhile, traveled the world to promote the idea of full Zionism elsewhere. He gave speeches in India, Japan, Canada, and the United States, where he was supported by the Christian American Crusade. One organization and the other organization was the German American Bund. And he claimed that he was uh, the official representative of Fleischhauer's World Service from Germany. When he was back in Germany, Beamish gave talks in Munich and on invitation of Julius Streicher in Nuremberg. An observer from the British consulate in Munich reported to London, and I quote, the lecturer concluded by unfolding a map of Madagascar decorated with a Jewish star and expounding his plan for the solution of the Jewish problem. It would, he said, be unkind to sterilize the Jews or massacre them. He therefore proposed that they should be deported wholesale to Madagascar, a country easily capable of supporting 100 million persons. In this island, which according to the translator, the Germans 
could turn into a colonial paradise, the Epsteins, Einsteins, and other Jewish geniuses would be able to develop their own civilization and show to the world their true capacity for organization." End of quote. Parallel to Beamish's efforts, the international anti-Semitic conferences were held in Germany since 1933. Uh, in 1937, Adolf Eichmann was sent to one of these conferences in Nuremberg. Parallel to the party rally, more than 100 international anti-Semites had convened on the invitation of the World Service. But at this stage, the group had already raised the suspicion of Heydrich and the Gestapo. Eichmann's report on what he saw and heard was devastating. In his view, which Heydrich adopted, these were amateurs and they could not be taken seriously by the growing apparatus of the Himmler-Heydrich machinery. The earlier they vanished, the better. One could argue that the fate of the most prominent Nazi member of this group, Alfred Rosenberg, and his failure to establish himself within the power struggle of the Nazi leadership was symbolic for what this whole group of anti-Semites experienced. To cut a long story short, the National Socialists in power soon put an end to this sort of amateurish anti-Semitism and broke up the World Service. Their idea of forced emigration and compulsory segregation nonetheless lived on. When the Polish foreign policy in late 1937 and 1938 attempted to negotiate some form of colonial settlement with France to find a place for the emigration of Jews from Poland, about one million Jews uh, should emigrate from Poland, uh, according to the Polish Ministry of Foreign Affairs, this discourse was closely observed by Heydrich and his men, and it also triggered some public repercussions. And I've got two cartoons to give um, this um, an example for these public repercussions. Uh, Madagascar attachment to Palestine, be it tarmac or palm trees where we are, Istanbul is one of them. And uh, we can't go into uh, analyzing the details, you know, let's say Orientalism, the construction of exoticism, etc., etc. We have no time for that. The other is um, a few months later, and now, nevertheless, Madagascar question mark, and we Malgashi have not been asked, obviously. These cartoons from December 1937 and June 1938 are related and reactions to the Franco-Polish negotiations, but as we can see, they depict the usual anti-Semitic stereotypes and through the endless line of steamers moving towards Madagascar, they echo the full Zionist idea of compulsory deportation and segregation. For the time being, nothing came out of all these ideas and plans, which were, in essence, either unrealistic or dangerous fantasies. To conclude, the idea of compulsory segregation of the Jewish people on an island comes up more or less parallel to the era of globalization and accelerating modernity at the end of the 19th century. It constitutes an anti-Semitic projection which claims to react to the alleged threats born out of the modern world. It gathers momentum through the seminal catastrophe of the First World War and the Bolshevik Revolution. 
it symbolizes the irrational longing to transfer what these anti-Semites perceive as a central element of the menace of modernity, namely the Jews, with modern means, namely globalized transportation, into a pre-modern world, namely Madagascar, to hypothetically save themselves and their world. The idea of compulsory segregation contains all the ingredients of a policy which is later coined as aiming for a final solution. As such, the idea paves the way for the radicalization of thinking and practice, which becomes the signature of the anti-Jewish policy of the Third Reich. And as we know, this process was again accelerated and transformed when the Second World War began and Madagascar came up once again soon after. But that would, of course, be the topic of another later. The decisive point, however, is that we have a dogmatic worldview here which is seeking the supposed redemption forever. Essentially, it is immune to any sort of rational argument. And we should keep this in mind when we talk about other similar developments. You could argue that the constructions and worldviews remain completely untouched um, of any rationality. And if you uh, draw parallelities, which was Basan TV has uh, drawn uh, on Islamization or Islamism, you could argue Islamism is taking up a similar stand as we have here with Aryanism and international Aryanism. To point out why this is the case, um, the constructions and worldviews remain completely untouched even by the annihilation, sorry, by the annihilation policy during the Second World War. As if there had been no Holocaust, no six million dead, the British anti-Semite Arnold Lees, leader of the Imperial Fascist League, declared in August 1946, I quote, Madagascar is the only solution to the Jewish problem. Thanks. I can hear me? Okay. Okay. Uh, so my name is uh, Javier Dominguez. I teach uh, Spanish history at the University of Paris, 13. And um, please do excuse my English. Between the beginning of the Spanish Civil War in 1936 and the end of the Second World War, Francoist propaganda depicted Jews and Freemasons uh, as two closely linked forces that conspired tirelessly against Spain. They, they were considered responsible for all the evils that uh, afflicted the country together with, with the leftists. While the Reds were an, an obvious and significant enemy for the nationalist forces, there were no more than about 5,000 Spanish Freemasons in 1936, and their influence in Spanish public affairs was limited, at least uh, as an organization. However, their fate was the same as that of the, of the communists, uh, relentless repression. The case of the Jews is even more surprising. The anti-Semitic propaganda of the early days of the Franco regime took place in a country where almost no Jews had lived since uh, their expulsion by the Catholic monarchs in 1492. In, in spite of the violent rhetoric against Jews, the regime did not systematically implement discriminatory policies against them. Above all, 
the Franco government did not facilitate Nazi anti-Semitic persecution during the Second World War, while some Spanish diplomats uh, protected the Jews in Danish. Why then were two groups that were so small, so different, and so differently treated by the regime, pre presented together by official propaganda as the powerful Judeo-Masonic enemy to be fought? What was the aim of Franco's propaganda about uh, Jews and Masons? What were its functions? This is what I have tried to, to explain the research presented in this paper. After several years of work, the result of this research has been re recently published in Spanish under the title of El Enemigo Judeo-Masonico en la Propaganda Franquista. Maybe you have seen it on the, on the bookstore table. I have analyzed the anti-Semitic and anti-Masonic uh, propaganda during the first period of the Franco regime, 1936-1945. In order to respect the internal logic of Francoist uh, discourse, it has been necessary to make a joint, a joint analysis of the representations of Jews and Freemasons, because anti-Semitic and anti-Masonic uh, references were very often intertwined in the regime's propaganda. Taking this as my starting point, my, my research has been essentially based on a cross-analysis of two kinds of primary sources. First, the, the printed sources that made the dissemination of anti-Semitic and anti-Masonic propaganda possible, in particular, the press and books that uh, denounced the, 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 the intrigues of Jews and, and Freemasons. In fact, the images that I have used to illustrate my, my talk come from this kind of sources. Second, um, several archive sources which reveal the precise nature of the links between the organization of Francoist propaganda and the creation of uh, an anti-Judeo-Masonic discourse. Among other results of this research, it appears that the new Francoist power led an, uh, an unprecedented propaganda effort to present the imaginary Judeo-Masonic consortium as one of the major enemies of Spain, of, of the regime, and by extension, Spain. But the anti-Semitic and anti-Masonic things were not new at all. They came from, from a centuries-old tradition, and in fact, one of the few new aspects of, uh, of, Francoist, of Francoism regarding the, uh, the transmission of anti-Judeo-Masonic uh, theories is the fact that for the first time they were disseminated by the authorities. It has also been demonstrated that the Judeo-Masonic enemy proved especially useful as a substitute enemy in cases where anti-communist propaganda uh, may have been counterproductive. This refers in particular to leaflets dropped behind the Republican lines during the Civil War. It's a, a means of propaganda in which uh, 
anti-communist arguments were useless. Or uh, this refers as well to the context of the German-Soviet pact, when Franco's propaganda had to tone down its anti-Bolshevik attacks. Several influences of a, of a very different nature made their mark on Franco's propagandists. First of all, they came from the long reactionary tradition that uh, had given rise to the Judeo-Masonic myth. Uh, coming from this ideological tradition and from this ideological background, mm, the protocols of the elders of Zion exerted a decisive influence in Spain, as did the work of French Catholic authors uh, Ernest Clon and Léon de Ponson. The influence of Nazi Germany is also apparent in uh, the anti-Semitic propaganda produced in Spain. However, the significance of the Nazi influence should not be exaggerated, as has often been the case. Sometimes it has been presented as the sole form of anti-Semitic propaganda spread in Spain, especially through the phalanx, the Spanish fa fascist party. An analysis of Franco's propaganda about Jews and Freemasons shows that the anti-Judeo-Masonism of the early years of the regime did not emerge ex novo. It is true that Nazi anti-Semitic propaganda was available in Spain, but it came into a field that was already fertile. Among uh, the Franco's political factions engaged in spreading anti-Judeo-Masonic theories, the, the phalangists, the, the, the Spanish fascists, were the most active. This is due to the, to the control they exerted over official propaganda between 1938 and 1945, rather than to any specific obsession uh, with anti-Semitic issues, even less, even less so anti-Masonic ones. In fact, these themes did not occupy uh, a central position in the original uh, thinking of the phalangists. When they did use them for propaganda purposes after 1936, they essentially returned to the arguments of a religious nature that the most traditional forms of Catholicism had been espousing for, for decades. The, the main accusations against the Judeo-Masonic enemy including those of the phalangists, did not have the modern uh, nature claimed by fascism. In some, even if the phalanx played a main role in the transmission of anti-Judeo-Masonic ideas, the data tends to underline the significance of traditionalist thought, another ideological current uh, that has often been underestimated as an influence to, on Francoist discourse. The, the cultural and ideological origins of, uh, of the, this myth, of the Judeo-Masonic myth, as used in the early days of the regime, were not fascist. Rather, they lay in the uh, reactionary ideas of national Catholicism, the, the ideology that considers Catholicism as the essence of the Spanish nation. The dictator's personal position should not be, should not be overlooked 
when it comes to explaining the use of uh, the Judeo-Masonic enemy, the regime's propaganda, even if Franco does not seem to have given much credit to the theory that linked Jews and Freemasons. Uh, in fact, he had very different points of view with, regarding each group. Um, the Jews never occupied an important place in his thoughts, and, and he even showed some understanding of the Sephardim, although this was because of their Spanish uh, heritage, and not uh, rather than their Jewishness. However, this did not prevent him from using anti-Semitic themes uh, for propaganda purposes, uh, as he did in several speeches or in the articles he wrote for Arriba, Fungi's newspaper, and even in some instructions uh, given to the press during the Civil War. On the other hand, Franco considered Freemasonry his worst enemy, even worse than communism. And the, the dictator's ideas about Freemasonry are essential in explaining the violence of the propaganda against this organization, in which Franco personally took part. One significant result of this work is the, the detailed analysis of a previously unknown element that played a decisive role in shaping Franco's thoughts and acts on Freemasonry. I'm, I'm talking about uh, the spy network known as APIS, APIS, which transmitted dozens of uh, fake Masonic documents to the dictator over a period of more than 20 years with the partisan aim of influencing him in a, an anti-monarchist, an anti-phalangist direction. This, this picture illustrated, um, maybe if not, I don't know. It was an article called, uh, an article that talked about uh, the Talmud had been uh, falsified. So, um, Several means were used to transmit anti-Judeo-Masonic theories between 1936 and 1945, such as broadcast speeches or leaflets. Um, but the use of these theories by the Franco regime is particularly evident when, when we examine uh, newspapers and the instructions uh, sent to them by the, official, by the official press and propaganda machine. During the Civil War, anti-Semitic and anti-Masonic themes appeared in the press on an almost daily basis due to the, to the constant intervention of the new Francoist power. The instructions were a way of launching several campaigns with very different goals. Uh, one of them, for instance, was to discredit mediation uh, in the eyes of public opinion. During the Second World War, attacks against Jews and Masons followed ever more different paths in the Francoist press. They were no longer published on a daily basis and tailed off towards the, the end of the conflict. In, in parallel with this uh, press activity, uh, two publishing houses at the service of the Franco regime played a, a major role in disseminating anti-Judeo-Masonic theories. Uh, Ediciones Antisectarias, Antisectarian, uh, during the late 30s, and Ediciones Toledo during the early 40s. 
at uh, a diffusion of these hectares, the ideological positions of Catholic, of Catholic traditionalism prevail, while Edithius Toledo um, was controlled by the phalanx. However, with regard to, to Jews and Freemasons, the contents were not very different between the two publishing houses, uh, being mainly characterized by a by an, um, an anti-Judeo-Masonism with Christian roots. The leading authors of the two publishing houses uh, had very different, different uh, careers, uh, but they did have some points in common. Uh, Juan Tusquets, a priest, was the, the manager of Ediciones Antisectarias and wrote the most important volumes of the collection. Um, while Francisco Ferrari Bilog, a former Mason himself, was the anti-Judeo-Masonic expert for Ediciones Toledo. Both had begun their, their anti-Semitic and anti-Masonic career prior to the uprising of uh, July 1936, inspired by a rigid view of uh, Catholicism. And both of them um, participated in anti-Masonic repression during the civil If the regime spread a, a violent discourse against Freemasons and Jews in its early years, it was because it could get many advantages from it. In a story by a well-known Spanish writer, a fictional Franco says that, quote, everything can be used from the enemy, end of quote. This assertion can be applied to the Judeo-Masonic enemy, which could even be used to achieve goals that were unattainable through the mere invocation of the communist enemy, as we have, as we have seen. Among the, the, fun the functions of anti-Semitic and anti-Masonic propaganda, those addressed to the Spanish population as a whole must be considered first. Explanatory function is maybe the, the most evident of all. The Judeo-Masonic myth provided simple explanations for extremely complex situations. Uh, it was a way of explaining a, a wide range of problems from black market to corruption and, and hunger. The legitimating function, equally obvious, was spe especially important in the context of a state under construction that was imposing uh, its rule through a civil war. And uh, the central role of the repressive function in anti-Judeo-Masonic uh, propaganda must be emphasized as well. Countless examples prove the existence of close links between propaganda and repression. Among them, there are the lists of Spanish Freemasons published by the nationalist press at the beginning of the Civil War or the fact that many anti-Judeo-Masonic propagandists, such as Tusquets or Ferrari Bilog, actively participated in the repression of Freemasonry during the Civil War. Other functions were specific to the political factions that were part of the Francoist coalition. Within this, this authoritarian coalition, propaganda against Jews and Freemasons 
mainly serve two contradictory functions. On the one hand, the Judeo-Masonic common enemy was invoked to unite the different, the different groups that supported Franco. In, in critical periods, the dozen church of propaganda aimed to ease tensions and to strengthen the regime's stability by joining forces against this musical figure. On the other hand, the anti-Judeo-Masonic discourse was also used by several factions of uh, the authoritarian coalition as a powerful weapon to attack the opposing factions of the same coalition. In some, the Judeo-Masonic enemy, as it appeared in early Franco's propaganda, working within the authoritarian coalition as a mechanism to regulate tensions and to control internal dissidents. Sometimes its invocation as a common enemy was able to reduce conflict. At other times, anti-Judeo-Masonic rhetoric acted as a safety valve, allowing tensions to be expressed. Besides, even for those who feel far from the history of Francoism, there is no doubt that this regime and its anti-Semitism without Jews may help us to explain the violence of anti-Semitic discourse in Spain today. Thank you. Has influenced the recent surge in European anti-Semitism. And I think you'll discover that I actually um, share a perspective in common with the previous speaker. It is difficult to look at shades of gray and I think it's very important to do that. So um, you can accompany me while I try to do this. For many, the EU is the epitome of modernity. It is a post-national, supranational entity that relies on soft power rather than on military might. With more than half of European legislation now drafted in Brussels, the EU has become an important, albeit virtually invisible, player in Europe. I would emphasize here that I will be talking only about the EU as an institution and its predecessor, the EEC. I'm not talking about Europeans in general. And given the EU's well-known, quote, democratic deficit, unquote, there can often be a significant disparity between these two. So again, I'm also not talking about member states. There's a very good discussion earlier today, particularly about Germany, and I know other countries have been covered. I'm not talking about national policies, just EEC and then EU. In the mid-1970s, the EEC decided to support the Palestinian position in the Mideast conflict. It also instituted expansive policies regarding family reunification, cultural autonomy, and social benefits for immigrants that helped to maintain high levels of Muslim immigration and non-assimilation non in Europe. Policies that the EU has continued to promote since it was given authority for immigration policy, per se, in 1999. <clears throat> Swiss-Egyptian scholar Bat Yeor has written extensively about this EEC decision, the dialogue with the Arab League in the 1970s, and its lasting impact on Europe. But there's another scholar who's come at this a slightly different way, and I wanted to introduce him today because I want to talk about him a little bit. 
It's French linguist and philosopher Jean-Claude Milner, and he presents a different interpretation of the EU's motivation in his book, the Les Penchants Criminels de l'Europe Démocratique, or the Criminal Tendencies of Democratic Europe. Milner argues that united Europe by its very nature will inevitably pursue a universalist foreign policy that will require the exclusion of Jews from the Mediterranean literal. He also notes a disturbing affinity between the EU's promotion of universal peace and the Islamist pursuit of global jihad. And he worries that the Europeans may be deluding themselves into thinking that these two initiatives can coexist peacefully. Other motivations certainly underpin EEC or EU Mideast policies, and they've been discussed in other panels, maintaining good relations with energy-producing Arab countries, as well as with the poor, restive, overpopulated neighbors to the south, or fear and the pursuit of various forms of appeasement. In the 1970s, as the scholar Ba'ayor charges, EEC officials sought to appease Palestinian terrorists. Today, it looks as if the EU wants to appease the Islamic world, whether it is Muslim countries or Muslim immigrants in, living in Europe, the latter often represented by Islamist groups dedicated to the overthrow of the West. While these are all valid, I think, Miller's perspective is a useful addition, emphasizing as it does factors that are intrinsic to the EU and that color its overall approach. As for anti-Semitism in Europe, I will argue that on balance, EU Mideast policies, although certainly not the source, contributes to its spread. And here I agree with what um, one of the previous speakers said in the plenary, um, that Mideast policy is the match that's thrown on the wood that's already in Europe. I thought that was a, a really good summary of, of how I see it, certainly, as well. It's, it's a contributor. It's not the primary source. Components of this particular Mideast policy that I want to talk about include insistence on the primacy of the Mideast peace process, mixed messages with regard to Hamas and Hezbollah, and direct or indirect funding of actors that seek to delegitimize the state of Israel. So let me review for just a few moments what Müller actually said. In his book, he posited a dark side to European unity. He argued that for many, the concept of a Europe unified by a common culture contained within it a key stumbling block, the Jewish problem. Hitler's final solution solved this problem, bequeathing to Europe's post-war leaders a Europe essentially free of Jews. On the ashes of the Third Reich, then, European leaders could begin to build a unified Europe. As an entity with no clear definition or borders, the EEC, followed by the EU, dedicated itself to various open-ended processes. One was promoting peace and reconciliation in Western Europe, Another was expanding EEC or EU influence throughout the world, particularly in Muslim North Africa and the Mideast. The EU has been particularly attached to the open-ended Mideast peace process, in which Mina argues the key is not to protect real people from physical harm, 
but to, quote, understand the other, unquote. Milner often compares the ideology of European peace with that of Muslim jihad, showing an eerie similarity between the two. He argues that events, events such as Durban 1 and the anti-Iraq demonstrations in 2003 mark the encounter and alliance between two limitless concepts, modern European society on the one hand and the caliphate on the other. The EU wants the worldwide extension of a modern, homogeneous European society, while the Islamists envision a global society living in conformity with the Quran. Many in the European elite, including senior European leaders, appear to believe that with sufficient, quote, comprehension, unquote, and, quote, moderation, unquote, the two can be reconciled with each other. Milner comments sarcastically that the Europeans appear to believe that they can provide enough comprehension and moderation for both sides. This new unified Europe, which sought to shed its bloody past, including not only two world wars, but also third world colonialization, developed an aversion to the use of military force and a marked preference for the underdog. Winning military victories is bad. Using the soft power of economics, culture, diplomacy, or negotiations is good. And the international community and international law decide who is right and who is wrong. Once again, though, there is a Jewish problem, this time in the shape of the state of Israel. It doesn't fit into the plan. Israel remains a non-Muslim nation state, rather than an amorphous, boundaryless entity like the EU. It relies on military force rather than on soft power, and it defines itself by religion. According to Milner, the logic of the situation dictates that Israel must disappear if the EU is to realize its, its ambitions in the region. So the question I want to look at is how useful is this vision in explaining EU Mideast policy and its impact on Europe? Many pundits have described the collision between the boundaryless, non-military, post-national, post-nation state EU and the state of Israel and more spectacularly between the EU and the United States. As I say, previous speakers have alluded to this, the question of nationalism versus a state perceived as nationalist. They've also documented the alliance between Islamists and the left against liberal democracy. So I guess this has been kind of a common theme throughout the conference. But I would say EU Mideast policy is more nuanced than Milner suggests. The EU, wishing to become a peace broker in the Mideast conflict, has in recent years upgraded its diplomatic, diplomatic relations with Israel in order to realize that ambition. Israel's growing economic and technological prowess also makes it a desirable partner. And there is no doubt that certain EU member states, such as Italy or the Czech Republic, are sympathetic to Israel and act to moderate EU policy. At the same time, the EU today faces growing domestic pressure, not only from ethnic Europeans, if you want to call them that, but from European Muslims, whose numbers have greatly increased, at least in part, due to EU policies. And these pressures are to, su to support Hamas and Hezbollah and to delegitimize Israel. 
There's no doubt that EU policies are partly driven by the desire to appease restive Muslims at home, just as they aimed to appease Palestinian terrorism in the 1970s. EU leaders cannot ignore the fact that more and more places in Europe are now becoming, quote, no-go areas, unquote, for non-Muslims, or that large, truculent crowds have recently marched through downtown Berlin and London shouting things like, death, death Israel, or Hamas Jews to the gas. Milner's perspective, while it ignores these dimensions, is nevertheless useful in analyzing three key areas where EU Mideast policy feeds anti-Semitism in Europe. And, and these three are an overemphasis on the EU on the Mideast peace process, a focus on Israel's disproportionate response to attacks by Hamas and Hezbollah, and EU funding provided to the Palestinian Authority, as well as to some NGOs that seek to delegitimize the state of Israel. I had here a short description of the link between anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism. In this crowd, I think I'll skip over it. It's been richly covered by others. <coughs> so the first point, what I call the gift that keeps on giving. Starting with the Euro-Arab dialogue in the 1970s, the EEC and then the EU has defined the Mideast conflict as the most important one in the world today. It is now an article of faith. While you can occasionally encounter an EU official who does not think so, for the most part, this is the refrain you hear. I would add that when I was researching um, a report I wrote a couple years ago, I heard that from the chief counterterrorism official in the EU. So it's not a random comment. Successive European leaders, most recently Spain's Zapatero, have hoped to achieve a breakthrough during their time in the rotating EU presidency, thus winning glory for themselves and for the EU. However, with both Fatah and Hamas dedicated to the destruction of Israel, the peace process is unlikely to end in peace unless it is the peace of the graveyard. In the meantime, the longevity and lack of success of the peace process guarantee that Israel will continue to be blamed for endangering the peace and security of Europe. The fear behind these accusations provides an additional impulse for anti-Semitism. Moreover, the EU policy opens a Pandora's box. Josef Joffe has described the elimination light European hopes that, quote, if one could only weaken and push back Israel, only somehow force Israel to retract its occupation come settlements, then presto, the Middle East conflict would be solved, unquote. Whether that impulse arises from the desire to expunge or reason away Europe's moral, moral failure in the Holocaust, from the hope of currying favor with Arab states or appeasing Muslim extremists, or from the instinctive desire of the United States to shed the other, the result is the same. A green light for continued anti-Zionism, and hence anti-Semitism, and correspondingly higher levels of anti-Semitism in word and action in Europe. It's a gift that keeps on giving. Unfortunately, it's a very negative gift. The second point is with regard to Israel's disproportionate response. EU Mideast policy also encompasses positions towards Hamas and Hezbollah. The record here has been mixed. The EU has refused to classify Hezbollah as a terrorist organization, 
but has condemned the terrorist nature and, act and um, activities of Hamas. Thus far, it has maintained the quartet's position against formally recognizing the Gaza regime, despite growing internal pressures. The EU Council did not endorse the Goldstone Report, for example, although the EU Parliament passed a non-binding resolution in its favor. After the Turkish flotilla incident, the Council resisted pressure from some member states for the EU to monitor the cargo of the ships headed for Gaza. One could argue that these positions, in fact, are in the EU's interest, that the EU has cautiously avoided taking untenable positions in the middle of the Mideast controversy, or that it has been responsive to lobbying from Israel, the United States, and certain member states. Certainly, the EU has never addressed the core goal of genocidal anti-Semitism shared by Hamas and Hezbollah, a goal that belies their image as underdogs and victims. Doing so forcefully might constrain the ability of the European Islamists to rally, rally people behind calls to support these organizations. Instead, the EU has essentially whitewashed them, repeatedly accusing Israel of responding to Palestinian attacks with, quote, disproportionate, unquote, force in essence denying Israel the right to defend itself. This EU-promoted alliance between international humanitarian law and Islamism is striking, occurring as it does simultaneously with calls by EU leaders for a Euro-Mediterranean common space and culture, whatever that means. Milner is right that proponents of expanded influence of a united Europe underestimate the difficulty or ignore the impossibility of finding common ground that the, with the Islamist worldview. And finally, the role of money. Since the mid-1990s, the EU has funded the Palestinian Authority, despite recurring accusations that money was going to fund, among other things, terrorism and hate education. An investigation by the European Anti-Fraud Office in 2005 found conclusive evidence that the European Commission funds were misused, but admitted it had no way, it, it didn't find the conclusive evidence, but it admitted it had no way to exclude such a finding. Several years later, a UK study charged that the EU, as well as British funds, were being still being used on educational materials glorifying suicide attacks against Israel. In addition, Israel, Israeli researcher Manfred Gersenfeld has argued that some NGO-funded and EU-funded NGOs have denigrated and delegitimized the state of Israel in the name of promoting peace. He also cited the lack of transparency in EU funding as well as opaque decision-making. The result, according to another study, quote, the Israel-based NGO network is able to promote particular political ideologies and to oppose the policies of the democratically elected government on many issues, unquote. In early 2010, the Knesset introduced a law to require NGOs engaging <coughs> in political activities in Israel to disclose any funding from foreign political entities. This law has drawn criticism in Brussels. The allegation that EU-funded NGOs are undermining Israel's claim to be a normal country, even to its right to exist or to defend itself, is eerily reminiscent of the vision presented by Nunez. It is also poisonous for Europe, 
when NGOs reinforce a delegitimized, funded by the EU, reinforce a delegitimizing view of Israel that in turn promotes anti-Semitism in Europe. So in conclusion, I would say, looking at the evidence in these three areas, it is difficult to avoid the conclusion that EU Mideast policy, while described as balanced, in fact, is not. Moreover, while not a primary cause, it has certainly contributed to the spread of anti-Semitism in Europe. While Mulner argues that the EU has a positive affinity for a Judenrein Mideast, other factors, particularly fear of radical Islam and Muslims in general, and the concomitant desire to appease both, appear to have also played a significant role. Frequently, the EU has blunted or contained the anti-Israel policies of some of its member states, a nuance not included in Milner's vision. Nevertheless, recent polling that shows that the closer people are to opinion makers in Europe, the more hostility they manifest toward Israel, suggests that the EU compromises do little to mitigate the basic impact of its policies. While I do not doubt the European leaders who express horror at the recrudescence of anti-Semitism, I fear that the EU's very nature as a borderless, post-nation state founded on multiculturalism in the pursuit of peace makes it vulnerable to such a development. So, thank you.